Hi, everyone. Welcome to On the Environment, the podcast from the Yale Center for Environmental Law and Policy. I'm Jenna Vigras. And I'm Charles Harper, and we are master's students here at the Yale School of the Environment. Today, we're talking with Sue Biniaz, a lecturer at Yale Law School and the former deputy legal advisor at the U.S. State Department. While in the State Department, Sue negotiated the Paris Agreement on behalf of the United States. Sue recently spoke on a panel held at Yale to mark the paperback release of A Better Planet, 40 Big Ideas for a Sustainable Future. And we're so happy to speak with her today. Sue, thank you so much for joining us. Well, thanks, Jenna, and thanks, Charles. Happy to be here. Great. So um, it is currently the end of October recording this, and the U.S. is set to officially withdraw from the Paris Agreement in two weeks, um, a bit less on November 4th. So if President Trump does win re-election, uh, what do you think might happen to the Paris Agreement without the U.S., the world's largest historical carbon emitter? Uh, well, that's a good question. Um, I think there are a couple different scenarios one could imagine, but none of them seem like they would be very good for the Paris Agreement or for addressing climate change. So scenario one, um, it's possible other countries might follow suit uh, and what I mean by that is leave the Paris Agreement. No other country made a move to follow the U.S. and withdraw following the uh, U.S. announcement in 2017. Um, there are you know, various theories for why no one left. Some people think that it's because of the design of the Paris Agreement, which is based on nationally determined commitments or contributions. So countries were sort of less dependent uh, in terms of their own commitments on whether the U.S. was in or out. Um, but it, they may have also just been waiting to see whether the Trump administration was going to be a kind of a four-year aberration or longer term. You know, if it's clear that it's not an aberration and the U.S. will be out for eight years or, or maybe longer, you know, they might follow uh, the U.S. and pull out. So maybe second scenario would be even if other countries don't literally withdraw from Paris, um, U.S. withdrawal could suppress implementation and action, at least in some countries. Um, so the U.S. would not only be not implementing a strong reduction target, but it would likely be, you know, continuing to promote fossil fuels um, and, you know, kind of actions contrary to the objectives of the Paris Agreement. The third possibility is there's no necessary not necessarily a negative impact from U.S. withdrawal, and maybe that would be because of strong U.S. subnational action, which would compensate in part for the lack of federal action. Um, but there would still be no positive presence. In other words, even if there's no negative, the fact that the United States is not in there actively pushing for uh, climate action globally would still be sort of a, a negative compared to what would happen if you had a administration that was um, committed to getting the world to um, to reduce emissions, et cetera. So th those are my three possible scenarios. There, there are probably more. So during the um, Lessons from a Better Planet panel, you spoke a little bit about how after the United States spoke about withdrawing from the Paris Agreement, that America's Pledge, which was a coalition of cities, states, and businesses, said that they were still in the Paris Agreement. Um, and it estimates that state and corporate action will get the U.S. to a 25% reduction in carbon emissions by 2030. So this is exciting, but um, 
President Obama's Paris target was actually 26 to 28 percent by 2025. Um, you remained optimistic during the panel about subnational action, and we are wondering why that is. Well, first, let me clarify that the coalition was called the We Are Still In Coalition, or WASI. America's Pledge is slightly different. That came along later, and that was a, a, a sort of Bloomberg-supported um, initiative, which tried to kind of add up the um, you know, the uh, individual pledges into sort of where, where could America get um, in, in the absence of federal action. But anyway, turning back to we are still in. Yeah, I really didn't mean that subnational actors make up for the absence of federal action. Um, you know, of course they don't, they can't. Um, but I guess I was trying to say that there are a few reasons to be happy that such actors have jumped into the climate action space. Um, couple reasons come to mind. You know, first, any action is better than no action, even if it's not enough action. Uh, you know, the atmosphere doesn't care whether the reductions are coming from a city, a state, or the federal government. Um, the second reason would be, unlike the federal government, which keeps flip-flopping on the issue of climate change, as we know, uh, non-state action, you know, in, in um, states, small s, uh, in the United States or cities, it's much more likely to be an irreversible trend. That at least has seemed to be the case. And the third um, reason to be happy, I guess, particularly as maybe I feel this way as a former State Department uh, employee, but non-state um, non capital S, climate action has been very helpful diplomatically over the last few years. In other words, it was much harder for other countries to look at the United States as a as a monolith when you had so much action taking place below the federal level, whether it was from governmental units um, like cities or states, or from companies or faith-based organizations, uh, et cetera. You know, it was telling that in uh, at the conference of the parties that came immediately after the U.S. announcement. So that I think would have been 2017. The pavilion that was established by the We Are Still In Coalition, you know, was larger and attracted more kind of attention and visitors than any country pavilion. So you could sort of that kind of illustrates in a nutshell um, that it was really important uh, that non-state actors, I wouldn't say, stood in the shoes of the federal government. That's not really possible, but um, had a kind of uh, significant presence. Well, that segues really well into our next question. Um, considering that the U.S. isn't a monolith and a lot of action is occurring at the city and state level, for example, um, do you think maybe there should be a way for these subnational actors to officially sign on to the Paris Agreement? So this is an idea of Professor Dan Estes, the director of the center. Um, but as, as you know, it runs counter to traditional international relations um, which was, I guess, set in 1648 by the Treaty of Westphalia, saying that only national governments should make these or sign on to these international treaties. And um, as you know, also in the U.S., this might violate the compact clause of the Constitution. So do you think it's important to find more formal ways for cities and states to engage? Or um, do you think maybe this official engagement should be left more to national governments? Well, you know, uh it's funny because Dan and I have debated this issue for several years. I think it's one on which we, we've decided to agree to disagree, as you sometimes say in the diplomatic world. Um, so going back to when Dan was running the Yale 
climate dialogue, I think that's what it was called, in the run-up to Paris. And I was the State Department lawyer working on the Paris Agreement. Um, we, you know, we sort of got into this uh, debate about this issue. Um, you know, at the time, well, I, uh, I was in a more, uh, you know, official role and I was uh, not not crazy about the idea. Uh, but now stepping, stepping back from that, um, I guess I would say there's a distinction between is there a more formal way for them to engage and can they literally or should they literally be able to join the Paris Agreement, right? Because those are two somewhat different things. So if, if the idea is literally joining the Paris Agreement, I think it's just a hypothetical question, right? Because as an international matter, the Paris Agreement only allows states, capital S, to join or regional economic integration organizations such as the EU. And you'd need an amendment to allow other entities to join. Um, in other words, the final clauses at the end of the agreement would have to be changed to permit some kind of other uh, entity other than a state or a Rio to join. And you would just never get that. You would need three quarters of the parties to the Paris Agreement, three quarters of about 200. Uh, so what is that? About 150. And they would all have to kind of ratify. And I just don't see that happening, either because states are kind of generically wedded to the idea that it's states that join treaties, or because of the climate context in particular. You know, I mean, think you'd have many sensitive situations where countries would not want some of their subdivisions uh, being able to join an agreement. So, you know, I don't think that is going to happen. I think there would also be a question like, what does it mean to formally join uh, for, a, for a city, a state, or, you know, some other entity? You can sort of see what it means when it comes to emissions targets, right? You would, I guess, take the concept of nationally determined contributions in the Paris Agreement, and you would, you know, substitute the word, uh, subnationally <laughs> determined or something like that, right? But you can sort of see the analogy when it comes to an emissions target. But like, what about all the other provisions of the agreement? You know, would a city have funding obligations? Would a city be subject to review? Who would pay for the review? Would the, you know, conference of the parties all of a sudden have to pay for hundreds or thousands of reviews? I, you know, so I don't exactly know what people mean when they say formally join the Paris Agreement. And you're right, you mentioned the compact clause. And of course, as a domestic matter for the United States, I don't know what the situation would be in other countries, but there would definitely be constitutional issues if, uh, you know, states, for example, tried to join a, a, a binding international agreement. But, but if you set aside the, the option of literally joining the agreement and you just look at whether there should be some more formal way that cities or states could engage, I guess I would ask then, you know, to, to do what? Like, what would be the purpose exactly? And I think for that, you'd have to look at, well, how are they allowed to engage now? And, you know, what would be the sort of incremental uh, extra thing that they would want to do? And I, I think Paris is an interesting example um, of an agreement that broke new ground in engaging subnational governments and companies, et cetera. It didn't break new ground in the sense that you mentioned. It doesn't uh, break the model in terms of who can literally join, uh, but it did break the model in terms of engagement. Um, it was really important to France and Peru and a lot of other countries that were hosting the cops on the road to 
Paris. It, it even had a name. It was considered pillar four of the negotiations. Um, was you know somehow allowing subnational governments and other entities to take on commitments, small c. Um, you know, for many reasons, it was considered important to broaden the base of climate action, uh, add to the credibility of national emissions targets, and um, allow the non-state actor commitments to be recognized in some kind of uh, semi-official way. Um, and Paris um, contains a lot of, maybe not necessarily in the agreement itself, but in sort of the surrounding decisions, uh, lots of uh, opportunities for non-state actors to to engage, uh, not just to come to the annual COPs, but there's all kinds of uh, all kinds of opportunities throughout the year um, to uh, um, to engage with the international process, which is pretty unusual for for an international uh, treaty body. So I guess the question would then be: so so what else? Um, would cities and states be looking for? I mean, some of the ideas I've heard is that they would like, you know, more official badges so they can attend more meetings and go into more buildings. Uh, you know, at the moment, they have to sort of scramble around to find out what's going on. Um, they would like the two universes of uh, that you see at an annual COP to be more combined, I guess. You know, sometimes depending on who hosts one of these COPs, you have the official negotiations going on in like building A and, you know, two miles away, you have um, everyone else in, in sort of building B. And when they're combined in, you know, a single space, it sounds kind of silly, but it can be really uh, meaningful because then there's a lot more interaction um, between, um, you know, the different sets, sets of actors, uh, national and Subnational. So, um, you know, this was an issue immediately after the Trump announcement in 2017. You know, right away, I guess cities and states were sort of asking, like, well, if the U.S. isn't going to be a party, can we be? Is there some way for us to be a party? That then kind of that whole issue of, of a formal joining kind of went away shortly thereafter. And um, you know, in the meantime, the U.S. Climate Alliance, the alliance of, of about 25 states in the U.S. And this, we are still in alliance, have been, you know, extremely active, but it hasn't really taken the form of um, seeking some kind of, you know, more formal role in in the treaty body. I mean, if Trump wins again, it may resurface. So, so we'll see. We may have an opportunity to to debate it again. Great. Um, so another thing that we have been wondering about with the Paris Climate Agreement is that many parts, as you know, are non-binding, and so states are not forced to meet their nationally determined contributions or NDCs that they've agreed to. And it's unclear whether successive rounds of these um, nationally determined contributions have to be more ambitious than the last. Do you think that future climate agreements will continue to use this voluntary bottom-up model? Or do you think that there's a chance to potentially add more teeth, so more um, binding commitments to the Paris Climate Agreement in the future? Well, let me go back a bit, because um, th that's a sort of a, uh, a large question. <laughs> it raises a lot of issues, but like, it, let me try to do it in a nutshell. Um, so Paris was a delicate balance among competing factors, right? So, you know, you could have developed what looked like a strong or stringent agreement on paper, 
right? Emissions commitments are negotiated, you know, quote unquote, top down. They're legally binding. There are lots of binding rules. There are consequences for failing to meet your target. But you'd likely get another Kyoto Protocol, uh, a failure of participation, because you would not get the big emitters in the world to join, right? Or you could have a model where all the key countries participate. So you have a, you know, a su successful participation, but there's just too much flexibility in the agreement. And it would be more like the Copenhagen Accord. And you, you might call that a failure of, of rigor. So you have to find the sweet spot between uh, those two things. So Paris combines features from both worlds. So just to take a couple of examples, it's not voluntary whether to submit an emissions commitment or, you know, a nationally determined contribution, as we call it, an NDC. It's not voluntary whether to be clear about what you're committing to or whether you need to update the commitment, whether you need to report on how, how well you're implementing it or be reviewed. Those things are all binding commitments. You're also encouraged to raise your ambition each time you put in your, an NDC. So when you say it's not clear, it actually is clear. It's not binding, It's but it's politically kind of encouraged. And that was a deliberate choice. It wasn't, um, you know, it was kind of, it was not an accident. The idea was if it was binding that each NDC had to be more ambitious than the one before, countries would probably shoot for lower ambition each time because they'd be worried about having to exceed that ambition the next time around. So it was a deliberate choice. Um, you know, and another feature is that it's not a violation of the agreement, as you said, if you don't achieve the target, but the transparency system is strong. So it will be well known to everyone in the world, you know, if you don't meet your, your commitment. So, you know, you could look at the Paris Agreement and say, well, I like the binding features, but I don't like the features that are non-binding or the ones that allow parties to design their own commitments. So let's take Paris, make it more top-down, like let's make it more binding, let's add consequences for not complying, et cetera, et cetera, you know, like financial penalties, trade sanctions, or whatever. You know, and if if you could get that, which I don't think you could, but let's say you could get that, I think you would lose the key emitters and you'd probably also lose uh, ambition because countries would be worried with all the bindingness and the the penalties, they'd be worried about uh, putting very ambitious commitments on the table. Um, so anyway, <laughs> that's that's my little analysis is that all of these things are trade-offs. So I don't think you can like take an agreement and say, oh, I like these features, but I don't like those features because it would have consequences to, to uh, change the features around. But that doesn't totally answer your question because your question is like, partly, what if the Paris model doesn't end up working? I think is what you're driving at. And, you know, if it does, if it does not work, I don't think that's the fault of the Paris model. I think that's, you know, attributable to the difficulty of the climate change problem and insufficient political will, et cetera. You know, it's not the the design of the agreement that, that drives the um, insufficient action. It's the <laughs> insufficient action that drives the insufficient action. Um, I guess you could look at it that way. But I also don't think you wait around to see if Paris fails. I, you know, as I've said sort of in other places, I, I call it the greater metropolitan Paris approach. In other words, you can't just sit around and say, 
oh, let's wait until 2030 and see if everybody, you know, meets their targets, or let's wait till 2050 and see if we get to net zero emissions. No, you have to take all kinds of action, right? You have to use every tool in the toolbox. So you need smaller groups of countries getting together and, you know, whether it's agreeing to sectoral targets or whatever, you, you know, you need international financial institutions, making sure their money goes into, uh, you know, Paris aligned funding projects, et cetera. Um, and you need a whole bunch of other treaties that are like related to Paris to be doing, you know, doing their part. Um, so anyway, it's a, it's a, I agree with the spirit of your, your question, which is what if Paris doesn't deliver? But I guess my answer, uh, is not that you, you know, after the fact change the terms of the Paris agreement, cause I think that would just, uh, you know, not be successful. I think you have to look for other, other ways to supplement it. Sure. So we talked at the beginning about what if uh, President Trump wins re-election, but if uh, Vice President Biden wins, uh, what might you expect him to do? Do you think that if he rejoins the agreement, he would want to increase the ambition of the U.S. and D.C. or how that might play into? He's also mentioned calling another global conference in the United States of countries. Um, how might you expect him to approach the setting of a new domestic target? Um. Yeah, so on November 4th, when the U.S. Uh, sadly ceases to become a party to, to Paris, the existing U.S. NDC, which just to remind people is 26 to 28% reduction below 2005 levels uh, in 2025, that will basically slide off the table, okay? So we cease to become, cease to be a party. We don't have our NDC out there anymore. So um, if the United States were to rejoin the agreement, which uh, Biden has said he would want to do kind of on day one, and the U.S. would then become a party 30 days later. Well, the U.S. would need at some point to submit a new uh, NDC. Now, I have to go back for one second. If the U.S. had been um, participating in Paris in good faith over the last couple of years, and if there hadn't been a pandemic this year, uh, the U.S. would probably have put in its next NDC this year in 2020. And that's because when the parties left Paris um, a few years ago, they put language in the decision that accompanied the Paris Agreement that said, hey, in 2020, here's what should happen. Those countries that put in 2025 targets should put in their next target in 2020. And those countries that put in 2030 targets should think about enhancing those 2030 targets. Um, or recommunicating them to put a little pressure on countries to not just uh, sit back and and do nothing. So if the U.S. had been taking Paris seriously the last couple of years, particularly this year, you know it would have taken its 2025 target and said, "All right, what's our next target?" Whether it was 2030 or or some other day date, um, but it obviously didn't. So when the U.S. comes back, my uh, hunch is that they would probably just skip. The middleman of a 2025 target and kind of jump right to the next target, which is where the United States should have been anyway. And you know, my guess is they would probably pick 2030 just because that's where um, you know that's where that's all people you talk to about the next USNDC seem to all think it would be uh, 2030. And um, you know, if you look at the Biden plan, which has those oodles of climate-related commitments, both domestic and international. 
you know, I think a reasonable person would conclude that it would the NDC would would be more ambitious than the um, than the existing 2025 target. Uh, you also mentioned uh, the vice president's commitment to a uh, a climate summit. Um, if you yeah, if you look at the the plan, I think he has mentioned in several different places, um, you know, in the written plan, but also kind of orally here and there, that he wants to host some kind of leader level summit within the first hundred days of uh, of a new administration, uh, seeming to focus on the major emitters. So you know, maybe that would be a revival of the major economies forum that the U.S. used to used to lead. Um, you know, maybe it would be a slight variation on that. Uh, and, you know, it's a tall order, right? Because administration's just getting started and hosting a leader level summit within the first hundred days, obviously, uh, is pretty ambitious. I guess there would be issues whether you, you know, the world would be in a position to uh, attend a meeting in person or that would be <laughs> virtual. Maybe it's more climate friendly to do it, to do it virtually. Yeah. Great. So we are going to close with one last question for you. So right now, it's pretty easy to be pessimistic about climate action. Um, many countries, including the United States, look like they may not hit their um, NDCs. And if, even if they did, their current ones likely won't keep warming to two degrees Celsius. We are wondering um, from you, what are some reasons that you uh, stay optimistic? Are there other actions or trends outside of the United States? I know that you mentioned that, you know, this is the only tool that we have. So wondering about things outside of the United States action that give you hope. Um, yes. Okay. Well, let me, let me make maybe two slight clarifications. First is it's actually hard to know whether parties are on track to meet their NDCs. Most countries took on 2030 targets, so kind of hard to know in 2020 whether they are on track or not on track. Um, and COVID has kind of you know messed up all kinds of uh, all kinds of predictions. Um, the other clarification is that the current NDCs, right, were never supposed to hold the temperature to you know below two or 1.5 degrees, they're just the initial NDCs, right? That's why Paris was built as a kind of a long-term agreement with these requirements to um, have a global review every five years and then for countries to put in their next set of NDCs. So I just wanted to clarify for your listeners that you can't look at the original, you know, initial set of NDCs and say, oh my God, Paris failed because they don't add up even if countries were to fully implement them, okay? Because that's that's the design is kind of a, a longer-term design. Um, anyway, but you ask about other reasons for optimism. I'm, you know, generally not an optimist by nature, and I look at COVID and the world's failure to deal with it, and I, it makes me kind of um, not very optimistic about the world's ability to deal with climate because there, there are some parallels between um, the two. And, you know, if you can't deal with a crisis like COVID, you know, can we successfully deal with a, with a crisis like climate? Who knows? Um, people who are more optimistic than I am, I guess, would point to, uh, you know, price of renewable energy going down, as we talked about, widespread action below the level of national governments, not just in the U.S., but kind of all over the place. Um, 
What else? Potential for innovation, technological breakthroughs, young people caring about this issue. Uh, may, some would say maybe we've learned something from COVID. You know, we're more vulnerable than we thought. You need international cooperation. You should get ahead of a of a problem before it uh, descends on you, um, et cetera, et cetera. So, so why don't we end on that more optimistic note? Great. Well, thank you, Sue, so much for talking with us. Um, we really appreciate the time you took. Well, thanks for having me.